If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. It seems odd we applaud the Ukraine president today, all while Canada delivers minimum money to NATO and hoards our world energy supplies they so desperately need. Here's Scott Thompson! It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. Uh, Will Weber on the board in the newsroom, Diana and Dave, and uh, of course, uh, Will Erskine watching the skies for us. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Boy, what uh, an incredible day it's been if you've been following uh, the news at all, especially the uh, Ukraine President uh, Zelensky addressing uh, the House of Commons today. Tomorrow, he uh, addresses U.S. Congress uh, as well. But uh, an incredible, um, very heroic speech, which, of course, we'll play you uh, some clips of throughout the course of the show. Um, But, um, uh, boy, a a very odd feeling uh, for me, especially when he started uh, naming images of Canadian cities, you know, referring to, you know, imagine your Canadian flag being taken down by a soldier. Imagine the CN Tower being bombed and your kids, uh, you know, screaming in the four o'clock in the morning because there's an air raid siren uh, going on. So just an, an incredible um, heroic speech, and uh, I couldn't help but feel odd and helpless uh, at exactly the same time while I was watching this. We're going to play you a clip here. This is uh, Ukraine President Zelensky referring to and really making it personal by referring to uh, specific places in Canada. Currently, we have 97 children that died during this war. Can you imagine famous CN Tower in Toronto? If they if it was hit by Russian bombs, imagine that someone is taking siege lane siege to Vancouver. Can you just imagine them for a second? And all these people who are left in such city, and this is exactly the situation that our city of Mariupol is suffering right now. And they are left without heat or hydro, or without means of communicating, almost without food, without water. Uh, that is the translator, of course, uh, and President Ukraine President Zelensky giving his speech to Canadian Parliament uh, this morning, which was obviously in- incredibly moving. But as I was mentioning before, um, you-, you can't help but have a, a terribly helpless awkward, odd feeling in all of this, because although we are sounding like we're doing a lot and we're sanctioning and we're whatever, we're not doing what they need to have done or what they need to be doing. And in order to do that, uh, theoretically, that triggers World War III. Some may say we're already there and pointing to Hitler marching across Europe, one state, uh, one uh, country at a time. So, uh, you know, those are debates that bigger minds than mine are having right now, trying to figure out how we get out of this. 
before they completely destroy what is even left of uh, of Ukraine. But, uh, you know, um, the Ukraine president, very obviously fond of Canada and fond of its support for Ukraine and the massive Ukrainian-Canadian population um, that, that we have here. Um, but it's almost as if we're saying, boy, you're a hero. We're going to stand up for, give you a, a three-minute standing ovation and there, you know, chills up everybody's spine, but that's all we can do. Wish we could do more, but that's all we could do. Um, you know, uh, the minimum amount of NATO spending, that's us. You know, sitting on world energy supplies that we can't share with the rest of the world, that's us. So, you know, I understand we're not a big power. I understand we don't have a great big military. Uh, but clearly, if Ukraine has taken on Russia's, uh, maybe they don't either. So, um, you know, it's, it's bizarre that we, we hold this man up as a hero, yet are in a very awkward position where we'll watch his country fall. Because there's only two outcomes here, and that's either, in whatever way you want to package it, um, whatever way you want to package this, uh, Either somehow Ukraine will slow uh, will will slow Russia down enough that something will change course, or they're just going to continue methodically blowing the place to smithereens. And I would suggest it's the latter, because Putin knows no one's going to touch the no-fly zone. So that's really where we are, unless some sort of miracle happens. And are you comfortable with that? Because I'm not sure I am. And although we all have a huge soft spot for the president of Ukraine, gee, sorry, wish we could do more. I don't know. Uh, again, bigger minds than mine are trying to solve these issues. But, uh, you know, I couldn't help but feeling uh, during this heroic speech that he was giving as he was referring to Canadian uh, cities and landmarks and such that he's crying for help. He's begging for help behind all the compliments. And, you know, we stand up, we let him speak, we cheer him, makes us feel good, and then we move on. What is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Is it going to be crossing a NATO border? Or is it going to be watching Ukraine get obliterated? Because that's where I think we're heading. And, you know, the U.S. president is going to head over and have some chats with people in Europe. Hopefully that uh, jerks loose some sort of, of solution, some sort of off-ramp. But, again, it's, it's, as Canadians, I'm not sure how we all feel today. As we sit there and we idolize this man and we invite him into our House of Commons, our Parliament, to let him speak... And then we go back to our glorious life, a life that some had there over 20 days ago and don't now. Some of the discussions we're going to be having today. Well, you know, uh, two years through a global pandemic, uh, Ottawa protests, now Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine invaded by, by Russia, and it's also tax season. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what? There is help, and that is the good thing. Uh, remember the old days when I remember my mother used to sit at the kitchen table with a pencil, and I think, how the heck could you possibly do that? 
uh, tax season is here, and uh, obviously um, it's something that you should try to get ahead of so you can take advantage of everything that is being offered to you. And the great people at the Hamilton Public Library are here to help uh, with the process. Let's bring in Shelly McKay, Manager of Communications with the Central Branch of Hamilton Public Library, and with us now. Shelly, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks so much for having me, and I am well, thank you, especially now this tax season. <laughs> yeah, this is, and you know what? It, it's it's great that the Hamilton Public Library is reaching out, and and you know we think of a library as as having a certain role in a in a city, in a town, what have you. Uh, but here's a great example of, of how the library system does way more uh, than what we just normally think it to to be. How did this all come about? So we are very fortunate at uh, Hamilton Public Library to have wonderful partners, and those partners are McMaster University. Canada Revenue, uh, the Tax Squad, People Helping People, and the fine people at the Chartered Professional Accountants, CPAs. And without them, we wouldn't be able to offer this. So with all those partners around the table, we're able to offer some great free tax preparation services. Uh, They are uh, really smart people (laughs) who are doing the taxes here. There's a 100 tax I'm going to call them the tax squad, tax squad mm-hmm. volunteers, and 10 registered CPAs who are helping them uh, fulfill uh, the need in the community, which is helping with uh, financial literacy, some tax prep help, whether it's uh, having them dropped off or by appointment. And it's really to uh, to help folks in the community that uh, may or may not be able to, to do the taxes on their own or have some questions. Some uh, and all the... Have- Oops, sorry, go ahead. And these organizations are volunteering their time for all of this. Correct, yeah. So uh, it's really important to have financial literacy, and Mm. uh, we should be teaching our kids from a young age on how to do that. So the folks that are volunteering are tax professionals. They're here to answer questions, help with uh, checklists, to um, answer questions about uh, maybe you're a newcomer and you've never filed taxes in Canada before, or you're... Um, in a new tax situation and uh, maybe you've got married or divorced or bought a house or had more kids or whatever it happens to be. But uh, it's definitely the time for asking questions and uh, learning a little more about how, how, to, uh, how to manage that tax situation. A lot of this is just so overwhelming at the best of times for people, and 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 many just you know I, I, it's too much I can't. Uh, but m- what some may not understand, and and perhaps this is something you can elaborate on, is that you know if you do this, you go through the process, you file, you, you could be eligible for benefits that you're not receiving, or 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 things like a, of that nature that could help you. Absolutely. So this uh, the whether it's a drop off or by appointment, there are eighteen opportunities to do that from tomorrow, starting Wednesday, March 16th, all the way through Wednesday, April 27th. And one of the accountants that we're working with, uh, she had mentioned, you know, in past years, they have been able to do 2000 tax returns and for a million in refunds. Most people don't know what they're eligible for. And this is the opportunity to ask questions, maybe say, hey, is this a deductible or is this eligible for um, some kind of refund? This year, if you worked from home, there's a $500 uh, deductible that you might be eligible for. You You just have to ask the questions. But also these folks are smart in ways that you might be able to have that checklist and say, oh, I did that or, oh, I have that. I can I can t- definitely take advantage of that. So take advantage of uh, of 
these volunteer tax folks. And uh, especially if you're within modest family income, this is perfect for for those who fall within some of those brackets. This and give us those numbers. Go ahead. Give us those numbers again. When uh, how many you've helped and how much money you've brought in over the years? Because yeah, that the, the right there, that's squad, reason to to jump on board. Unbelievable, right? So the tax squad folks were telling us that they did two thousand. This is all volunteers. They did two thousand tax returns and have saved more, received more than four million in refunds. For there you go. For Divide that by uh, two thousand and see what you get. Boy, that's it's great. A, so if people give us. Yeah. Uh, Shelly, give us all the logistics again if people want to get involved, the whens, ifs, hows, wheres, and so on to, to, to get the help. Okay. If you are in Hamilton and you're of modest income, you can uh, either register online to have an in-person appointment, or you can do a drop-off at any of the times and dates that I'm going to mention. You can go online and go to HPL, so that's Hamilton Public Library, hpl.ca slash free dash tax dash service, or you can just go to hpl.ca. It's right there on our homepage. A wonderful little uh, person holding a calculator. Hopefully that's you and your tax volunteer. And uh, sign up for one of those days or drop off. Check out the checklist because whether or not we're helping you with your taxes, it's a great way to gather all that information in one place to get you started. Also, the library offers lots of uh, ways to increase your financial literacy, whether it's books, magazines, listening, watching, and uh, we also have some videos online to uh, for newcomers, those who have disabilities, uh, some seniors, uh, tax help. So be sure to check it out. We have lots of information, and uh, we'll help you get your taxes solved for this year. Hamilton Public Library doing more than just books, uh, even helping you with your taxes. Man, this is amazing. What a great idea, Shelley. Shelley McKay, Manager of Communications with the Central Branch of the Hamilton Public Library. If you need some help with your taxes, uh, just ask. Shelly, good luck with all this. Be well. Thank you. Keep well. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, uh, prior to this invasion, prior to the protests in Ottawa, we were coming or are coming to the end of a global pandemic uh, in the world. And we're certainly starting to see uh, protocols be relaxed and, uh, you know, life get back to not necessarily normal pre-COVID-19, but what living with this uh, virus will be like in the future. And obviously, with it being March break this week, uh, and all you have to do is talk to some kids and find out where all their friends are to know that there are a tremendous amount of people traveling, uh, especially this March break, which is probably the first one uh, in a couple of years where people fell, uh, felt uh, relatively comfortable about doing so, especially when it comes to testing and things like that. However, uh you know, you can't put a, a, an industry on hold for two years and expect it to bounce back like that, considering how many people uh, had left the travel industry, you know, whether you're you're talking about people who are in charge of getting planes up and running and maintaining them or the staff that books the tickets or those that are on the planes. I mean, you can imagine. And now all of a sudden demand going through the roof. Uh, where is the rest of the industry? Let's bring in Marty Firestone, president of Travel Secure, and with us now. Marty, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. Yes, all good. Thank you. We know that this uh, industry, as well as the, most of the world, has been uh, certainly shut down, locked down, or alternated, uh, uh, or uh, performing in an alternate means since all of this started. How difficult is it going to be to fire up this industry again? Well. Prior to the potential fuel surcharge scenario and, of course, all the issues going on, 
with unrest, etc., we were really, really headed to pre-pandemic levels and then some pent-up demand was just driving uh, March break and hopefully summer plans. Now I'm a little concerned about what the future holds, I must admit. Talk about that, because obviously uh, the president of Ukraine uh, addressing Canadian Parliament today, how does this situation, this conflict in this part of the world, how does it alter travel plans? It's huge. You see, cruises, Baltic states, the barge uh, excursions travel to any one of those countries, even surrounding the two countries in conflict now are all up in the air with respect to who is going to go there, who is going to put out deposits and plan trips this summer without knowing what the future holds. So I think it's going to really have a major effect on international travel, no doubt. And then local, domestic, or even to the U.S. and some destinations, the fuel surcharge alone on future ticket prices and trips, that's going to also be discouraging. So we kind of get out of one problem, and we just now have two major ones facing us again, no doubt. And obviously, if uh, travel plans to Europe are, are kiboshed, that puts stress on whatever's left for the buying public. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Croatia is an example, very hot spot that people would get away at summertime. Questions are coming galore now. Marty, what do you think? Is, is Croatia a safe spot? I said, guys, <laughs> the problem is we just don't know the extent to, and what the next decision is and what's going to happen. So they don't want to put out $5,000 deposits and then find out that cancellation insurance won't cover if war is an exclusion or, or, or a, a travel advisory and things like that. So as you can see, hesitancy galore that we thought we were past at this point. Uh, you talked about the hesitancy, Marty, and, and just the demand not being there. What about the ability to ha- get these industries running again? Are there staff for planes maintaining them, what have you? Is there enough standing by so when the demand does increase, the the industry can adapt? Yeah, I think there there was, there is, and there is going to be. Now the question is, the pent-up demand and the early response since the uh closing of some of the the restrictions that they had in place the government advisory going from a three to a two now you don't need pcr just a pandemic and the third being the 12 year olds could uh go back to daycare or i should say school settings as opposed to quarantining 14 days all those things just drove people to say i'm off the fence i like what's happening my government has told me i can travel now so all that was leading in the right direction and then this came up so the 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 industry is waiting the the, the sector's ready but now what does the future hold? That's the big question. And so is it, uh, you know, you were talking about the Baltic states and, and all these different region regions that have cruises. We know the riverboat cruises, that yeah. sort of thing is a huge industry uh, right now. But what about if, if somebody's planning uh, on a trip to the UK or Italy or Germany? I mean, is it going to affect that travel as well? That I don't see yet. That I still see many trips being planned to France, Italy, bike trips to Italy, excursions to Israel, places like that. Those are still outlying. That's the right word. I don't know. But those things are still a go. And the concern of getting COVID or having a border closure again is sort of put by the wayside. So now you are right. That trip and those international ones will still be a go at this point. I don't know what the future holds. But the other ones in the Baltic states and the surrounding areas of Ukraine and Russia, that's a big question mark. So, Marty, what's the advice to those that are going, what do I do now, Marty? Well, if you know you're going and you're committed, at least as far as U.S. and sun destination spots, buy the tickets now. They're never going to be any cheaper. The question of fuel surcharges being added is no doubt in the 
future at some point. Right now, if you own a ticket, it's been issued and you have it in your hand, they can come back and add on to it. So that's the good news. Bottom line, you have to make some real big decisions soon as to whether you're going to put out large amounts of money for potential international trips in summer of 2022. Marty Firestone with us, president of Travel Secure, talking about the travel industry coming out of a global pandemic, getting ready to roll and then unrest in the world. Marty, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You're inspiring democracies and democratic leaders around the world to be more courageous, more united, and to fight harder for what we believe in. You remind us that friends are always stronger together. With allies and partners, we're imposing crippling sanctions to make sure Putin and his enablers in Russia and Belarus are held accountable. Today, in line with our European Union partners, I can announce that we have imposed severe sanctions on 15 new Russian officials, including government and military elites who are complicit in this illegal war. All right, that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today, just prior to uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky speaking to uh, the House of Commons just after 11 o'clock this morning in an incredibly moving speech in which he uh, literally identified parts of Canada. Uh, and um, we've all been watching him speak over the course of this, what, 20-day invasion. And uh, heroic just seems to be a mild word to use at this point. Let's bring in uh, Amanda Connolly, senior political reporter for Global News, is with us now. Amanda, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Fascinating to see uh, the, the President Zelensky speak and uh, obviously the emotion and the courage he showed. Uh, but see if you can capture some of the feeling about what it must have been like to, set, to sit in that house and, and watch the president of Ukraine deliver this. Absolutely. Well, any any time that you're sitting in the House of Commons there in the chamber, you know, I've, I've been in there myself for, for major addresses similar to this. Um, I was not there today, though, and it, it is a very solemn, very serious occasion. Of course, you're sitting in a place where you you are conducting things of such importance. There are so many people there. And we saw today as well, the people, the parliamentarians and the guests who were gathered there, really a sea of blue and yellow uh, suits and blazers and scarves out across the crowd, across the parliamentarians who were gathered in the chairs on the floor of the House of Commons. Those, of course, are the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And so many were wearing ribbons as well, pinned their chest in those flag colors. The galleries overlooking the House of Commons itself here in the chamber were packed to the brim. And especially you saw that when the crowds and, and the people gathered got up for multiple standing ovations, both of uh, Trudeau's introduction of Zelensky and of course Zelensky's uh, address himself. What about his actually making references to the CN Tower being bombed, to soldiers taking down Canadian flags and referring to Canadian cities? Yeah, this, I think, was part of what what made his address so evocative. It really was an impassioned plea for Canadians to put themselves in the shoes of Ukrainians who, of course, are facing shelling and, and just horrific violence at the hands of Russian President Vladimir Putin right now. Zelensky said multiple times throughout his speech he wanted people who were listening today to envision what this invasion would look like if it was happening here in Canada, saying, can you imagine the famous CN Tower in Toronto being hit by Russian bombs? Of course, we've seen powers in Kyiv and Ukrainian cities 
being hit by Russian shelling as well, uh, really drawing those parallels here, talking about how would it feel to see foreign soldiers coming in and taking down Canadian flags in cities like Montreal and Edmonton and Vancouver, having to explain to your kids in any of these cities what is happening when someone else is doing this to your country. And so, again, really a very stirring, very evocative speech by Zelensky, both praising Canada for the contributions and the efforts made so far to support Ukraine and also really making it clear that they want more to be done. Mm. That was, you know, and again, Amanda, as you said, this was very passionate and, and very, very moving on on so many different levels. But at the end of the day, at the end of the speech, I couldn't help but thinking, you know, everybody's praising this man. Everybody's giving him standing ovations. Everybody's telling him what a hero he is. And then on the other hand, we're saying, but there's nothing we can really do more. Um, uh, Do you think with him selling his story, uh, does this benefit him? Can he help change policy? I know I'm asking you a question that can't be answered, but but again, there, there's one on one hand we're uh, you know we're praising him, but we're not giving him what he really wants. Who does this benefit? Does it benefit him for getting the message out, or does it just make us feel good to have him come and speak in our home? I think there's there is there's kind of multiple sides to that. First of all, of course, the the motivation for him coming out and doing these kinds of addresses, and of course, he's speaking to the U.S. Congress tomorrow as well. Um, the, the the kind of goal here really seems to be to raise awareness, to build those uh, those ties, and to really kind of have the kind of conversations that you and I are having right now. As a result, where people maybe are going to think about what it must be like to to go through this, and maybe. Um, Think again, kind of change perceptions and, and perspectives on this among electorates in, in the countries that he's talking to. And, and again, part of it as well is, is likely going to be the fact that they're, they're still looking for a lot more support. There are things that, that uh, Ukrainians want from Canada, from the U.S., from NATO allies. Uh, and when they come and when they speak uh, to, to the citizens in these countries, of course, those conversations happen more. You're talking about the things they're asking for, things like the the legal aid, the humanitarian support, um, again and again as well, the the question of a NATO no-fly zone. Um, things like these are, are coming up more often and they come up again and again when they do this. And that, I think, really is part of the the goal here for officials, Ukrainian officials who, who are speaking, is to keep the issue front of mind for Canadians because, of course, um, this is not something that, that the, 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 U, the Ukrainians themselves are able to walk away from or, or turn a blind eye to, right? They, they want to keep this alive in all of our thoughts as it's happening. Amanda Connolly with us, senior political reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Uh, Amanda, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. The most commercial pop song, mainstream song that Dolly Parton never had. The rest pretty much pure, uh, pure traditional country. But was offered a chance to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Turned them down. Fascinating story. Let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator. By the way, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything's great. Yeah, CHML, country radio. Let's hear it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I want to read the note that Dolly yeah. Parton wrote to the uh, to to everybody. This was her tweet, and I thought this is so classy. Dolly, but you have here, to do it in a in a in a, in a bubbly. Oh my! I don't think I can do it like that. I'm going to make her sound <laughs> like someone from Ozark. 
Uh, Dolly here. Even though I am extremely flattered and grateful to be nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I don't feel that I've earned that right. I really do not want the votes to be split because of me, so I must respectfully bow out. I do hope that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will understand and will be willing to consider me again if I'm ever worthy. This has, however, inspired me to put out a hopefully great rock and roll album at some point in the future, which I've always wanted to do. My husband is a total rock and roll freak and has always encouraged me to do one. I wish all of the nominees good luck and thank you again for the compliment. Rock on. What a classic lady this is. My goodness. Yeah, yeah and she's wrong. And look, this is the first time in her life where she's been wrong, but she absolutely does earn and warrant to be in the rock and roll hall of fame because why rock and roll because both rock and roll and country have the same roots in yeah. blues so it yeah. makes sense you know there's a very large tree called rock and roll the rock part we get it's rage against the machine it's radiohead it's little richard it's the beatles the who the stones whatever the roll part is what people forget that's the r&b that's the country that's the rap mm. that's whatever it makes you feel good with music and when you take a look at just you know the fact that she's on i think like her 76th album that comes out this month um the fact that she's probably more punk rock than any other punk rocker out there you know why do you say that who, eric because she she kept her publishing after she was almost literally forced to mm. give it up. If Elvis Presley was ever going to record, I will always love you. She we, yeah. still owns all of her masters. She owns all of her publishing. She gave a million dollars to the Moderna vaccine. She gives books in the hundreds of thousands per year to families who can't afford them. She's championed children's diabetes research. She's founded libraries. She started a bald eagle sanctuary. She turned down Donald Trump twice for a presidential medal of <laughs> honor that to me says somebody who is not only nice and kind and generous and wholesome but somebody that never wants to do anything that she doesn't really want to do and the fact that she turned this down because she might believe that she's taking away votes from somebody who might be you know not in there is absurd because quite frankly the rock and roll hall of fame could have 17 people in there again this year for all they want and i did absolutely believe that dolly parton deserves to get in there um obviously i get the whole uh, country rockabilly country swing that's you know that's the jerry lee lewis's that's uh, everything you know the bill haley's that we heard way back when do you have to be a successful crossover country artist in order to get into the hall because otherwise you could invite them all in yeah, and 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 it's probably something that a lot of critics for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, don't do fast enough. You know, in the beginning of the Hall of Fame, they had five or six people inducted, mostly the the early beginning, the builders of rock and roll, the Little Richards and Fat Domino and the and the Beatles and so forth. You have to get them in, but then seemingly they did the '60s really quickly, skipped over the '70s and '80s, and now we're in the '90s. So they're falling behind, and you don't really have to be a crossover because even if dolly barton wasn't the white stripes have covered jolene um mm. uh, uh, nine inch nails covered hurt by johnny cash johnny cash is the only artist in the rock and roll hall of fame the r&b hall of fame and the country music hall of fame now mm. he doesn't he crossed over too but when you get to be dolly parton you transcend 
everything. It's not even the style of music anymore. You just become a humanist. You become a person of the earth that, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame needs Dolly Parton to be in there more than Dolly Parton needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of yeah, Fame. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and it's funny because you brought up the Elvis story because I was just having that uh, conversation off air with with Will. Uh, tell the story about I will, I, uh, I will Always Love You and how Elvis wanted to do it and why it never happened. Yeah, so... One afternoon, Dolly Parton wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You. That so this is an old her- song. Been around for a long it, time. It, yeah. In fact, it's the only song in music history to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 three times in three separate occasions with two different artists with Dolly Parton hit number one. Um actually twice she hit it on the country chart then later on on the pop chart on the hot 100 then Whitney Houston did it but back in the day in the early 1970s um, Elvis Presley wanted to record that song before Dolly Parton ever did and the the deal was that if Elvis Presley recorded your song that you wrote you would have to give up 50% 50% of the mm-hmm. publishing, which means that he becomes the co-writer of the song because he's putting his own stamp on it. He's which he did with everything. Successful. You everybody did that, you know, because it was the way that it was it was kind of like math, where do you want a hundred percent of zero or do you want fifty percent of a hundred thousand dollars? And uh so um Elvis Bradley and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, said, Look, if you want Elvis to record this, you have to give up half of your percentages and your profits. And Dolly said, no, thank you. Um, nobody turned down Elvis. Nobody. Especially, to have especially Elvis at that time song, of her career. Like, yeah. Yeah. He was like 1972. He just had his 19th comeback. He was still a yeah. demigod <laughs> yeah. in the music industry. This was four years before anybody would ever think that he would be passing away. Um, and look, he could sell three, four, five million copies of anything that he decided to sing and put out as a single. So to Dolly Parton, she literally left maybe anywhere between eight and $10 million worth of royalties and radio play on the table um, when she decided to say no, because she felt that she wrote the song. And as a woman, she didn't, she didn't want to be taken advantage of by male counterparts because Elvis didn't do anything. She, you know, she respected him, but Whoever write, wrote the song should get all of the credit for writing the song. Just because you happen to sing it doesn't mean that you get to have your name on it in that format. And that led to a lot of women standing up and saying, no, if I wrote the song, who I don't care who wrote it, I still get that credit. Incredible story. And yeah, again, shows to the character of Dolly Parton. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator, uh, talking about Dolly Parton turning down a nomination to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring back Paul Delaney, uh, Professor Emeritus Astronomy, York University, uh, and talk about something space. We always like to do that when it gets a little difficult on Earth. However, it's, it might get complicated up there, too. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm indeed. Scott, always nice to chat with you. So we, we've talked about this before, Paul. What happens when you've got an international space station with an international crew and then you have an international conflict? Obviously, the situation now, a U.S. astronaut's been up there for an extended period of time due to come back March 30th and obviously in a Russian rocket. Is this an issue? How are they weaving through this? Well, let's hope that they continue to weave successfully. Uh, if you go with the official commentary out of, the ISS consortium, 
it's business as usual. And certainly activity on the ISS appears to be business as usual. However, if you're tuning in to uh, the, the, uh, the director of the Russian space program, Rogozin, yeah, it's not quite so business as usual. There's been quite the uh, Twitter feud, shall we say, with American astronaut Scott Kelly. They've actually tweeted out little video clips that look as if you're abandoning the ISS and leaving astronauts up there. But all of that seems to be a touch, shall I say, uh, frivolous. Uh, the official commentary seems that it is business as usual. And Mark van der Heij should come back to Earth aboard Soyuz on, a, on March 30th as planned. Uh, maybe getting down from the space station is one thing. Now uh, getting them from Russia back to America, will that be an issue? Well, that would be the one thing that I'm worried about. There's not been any commentary uh, out there officially. But personally, you'd have to say that that's got to be a concern. Uh, if, if Mark lands on Russian soil, which that's the expectation, you normally go back to Roscosmos's uh, area at uh, the Bacchanal um, Space uh, Complex. And from there, it could be a few days to a couple of weeks, normally, before you come back to U.S. soil. Given everything else that we have seen with a result from the uh, Ukrainian war, You've got to be a little bit concerned, don't you, about that that transfer, shall we say, of an American citizen? So, uh, as I say, unofficial. Sorry, officially, it's business as usual. Unofficially, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are contingencies, including leaving Mark on the International Space Station. And what are the options after that? Well, we have this great workhorse called SpaceX and Dragon. Mm. Uh, it's a vehicle that can carry up to seven people. We've done it only with four at the moment because the rest of the space has been taken up basically with supplies. But Dragon was always designed to carry far more than four. So if the need arises, I have little doubt that Elon Musk would be literally at the launch pad tomorrow with a Dragon to fly to the International Space Station if the need arose. But let's remember, the International Space Station is not exactly a, a small place. If Mark needs to stay up for a few more weeks or, heaven forbid, a few more months, the ISS is in a position to do it. It's how the international consortium deals with, shall I say, the impending conflicts between, well, not impending, the actual conflicts that are occurring between the U.S. and Russia at this point. That's my next question. So, Paul, what does this do for the program moving forward? <sighs> yeah, we need a crystal ball on that one. Let me take the optimistic view for the last 25 to 30 years, the U.S., NASA and Roscosmos in its various guises have worked exceedingly well together. And the astronauts and the cosmonauts have worked very well together. They really are friends. And even though there are political ideologies at stake here, there has been no indication over that 30 years that cosmonauts and astronauts are nothing but firmly in each other's court when it comes to survival on the ISS. And let, let's be very frank about it. It is survival. If, if there is not good cooperation, the potential for loss of life on the ISS is very high. The fact that we've talked about this relationship for 30 years and it's been excellent is something that you should not discard. So the astronauts and the cosmonauts themselves I think are fine. It's, if you will, their political masters that are having the issue. And there is little doubt that this is going to uh, certainly cause complications going forward and potentially the Russians withdrawing from the consortium 
earlier than expected. 2024 was their original expected uh, date of, of departure. They had mused that they would extend to 2030, as most other members of the consortium have done. Will they now back down to, again, 2024 or potentially say, uh, I'm out of here next week uh, and I don't know. Hopefully not. Hopefully that the ISS can represent one of the real small points of sanity in this current world. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should let them try to solve the world issue. They've clearly got it figured out. Last question, I know you got to run. With Elon Musk, do we need Russia anymore? I mean, at one time it was Russia taking us up and down, but do we need that with Elon Musk? Uh, it, it's much more complicated than that. Going up and down with Elon Musk is easy, but the maintenance of the International Space Station, there are two very big components there, the central modules, which have the thrusters, the, the uh, life support for the entire station. The station is one, and if the Russians did decide that they wanted to extract their technology, it does compromise the ISS's ability to operate. So it's not just a matter of seats into orbit, it really is a matter of a consortium running a very large world-class laboratory. And so that will be a question in the coming weeks and months. Wow. Paul Delaney with us. Uh, Astronomy, York University, retired professor, still actively involved in it, though. I'm sure we'll chat again, Paul. You be well. Take care, Scott. Boy, what a what a scenario. And, and you know, Paul and I have been talking about this for years, obviously with the International Space Station, uh, astronauts, cosmonauts, what have you up there from virtually all over the world. And it really has been a uniting factor as far as uh, the International Space Station has been concerned. But when we uh, uh, had Chris Hadfield on and he was in Russia training, he, he was the commander to actually fly the Soyuz rocket, had to learn russian actually learn how to fly the rocket ship the spacecraft by by reading a russian manual so had to understand the language and then actually flew the russian craft up to the space station and then stayed up there for uh however long so um you know obviously russia a huge part of the international space station and really our only means there uh for the longest time but even as as paul has explained even with elon musk uh knocking on the door uh still doesn't have the capability to do uh what the russian craft would do uh bringing people and supplies and literally equipment back and forth so fascinating uh u.s astronaut is aboard the international space station going for a duration record of just over a year and supposed to come down on march 30th and obviously with the russian rocket taking that u.s astronaut up and down uh he may have to find another way home is that what you want to hear when you're on the international space station uh elon musk to the rescue uh possibly Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A couple of things we want to talk to Marvin Ryder about, the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, Marvin, can't uh, get started here without first asking you your comment uh, for a comment on uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine making a passionate uh, speech to the Canadian House of Commons today, uh, obviously pleading for a no-fly zone. We know if that happens, it will signal the start of World War III, which is why we are not doing it to this point. Uh, sanctions obviously being talked about uh, a lot. Is there much more we can do? Are these sanctions going to do anything? 
Well, the sanctions themselves are crippling the Russian economy. We know that. We know that Russia is about to default on $150 billion of credit at various banks around the world. Um, they're just not going to be able to continue business as usual. And we know that the citizens in Russia are, are suffering. The question is, are they going to do anything about it? That has been the hope that the people in Russia would say, I don't like what's happening here and rise up against Putin, either removing him, revolting against him, perhaps in the worst case scenario, even assassinating him as it goes. The question is, how long will that take versus how long can Ukraine hold on? Zelensky was a very passionate speaker, and I think he very much impressed everyone who listened to his speech. He did mm -hmm. something very clever today. He made it very Canadian in the speech. So he made reference to various Canadian landmarks, how we would feel if the CN Tower or Vancouver or what have you was being bombed by an opposing enemy. And we made it very personal. I'm just not sure we can do what he asked. And that's that no-fly zone. If you could clear the Russian planes from the skies, I think Ukraine has a fighting chance on the ground. But the question is, how do we do that without invoking World War II, uh, uh, World War III? So clearly, uh, Mr. Trudeau has lost to think about, again, with the allies. This is not totally on Canada's hands. No. But we've got to find a route together to do something. All right, uh, let's talk about uh, Unifor and President Jerry Diaz. Uh, it was announced uh, a while ago that he was going to take a, an early retirement. Uh, we heard something about health reasons, and that was it. Now we're finding out that there is some sort of investigation going on uh, regarding alleged breach of, of Constitution. What does that mean, Marvin? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Thank you for asking, Scott. So let me take you back in time to the middle of February. Uh, Jerry Diaz uh, was elected to his third three-year term as president, and that was expected to run out in August of 2022. And he indicated in 2021 that he wasn't interested in running again, so his total nine years would come to an end then. In the middle of February, he announced that he had some health challenges and he was going to withdraw from public life. He wasn't retiring right then, but he was going to have his social media account go silent so he could focus his efforts. He never said what the health challenges were, but you assume the worst when you hear this, someone who has to focus, maybe he's facing cancer or something like that. And then it was just uh, earlier this week that he announced that, again, to focus on health challenges, he was retiring early and everyone wished him well. Now the story has leaked out that uh, there has been uh, an allegation that he breached the organization's constitution. Now that could mean just about anything. It could mean something around the um, uh, the way he was last elected to office. Maybe there were some improprieties in, in that campaign or how the vote was held or fundraising. Perhaps there's an allegation that he, he took some money for something or he used staff in an inappropriate way. Everyone's been very, very tight-lipped about this. I, I was doing a search before we spoke through the internet, all over the internet, to see if we found a leak somewhere, and no one seems to be putting any meat on these bones. So it really raises more questions than there are answers at this point. Is there any reason to believe the two are related, or is it just bad optics at this point? Well, that's, again, a really good question. Uh, Mr. Diaz would not be the first leader who has uh, chosen to leave an office for reasons other than the real reason uh, and putting a public face on this to give himself some, some um, um, well, what we call it, a back route out of this and saving face as he goes. I, again, I don't know. In February, there was no one who doubted that he was an ill man and needed to focus on his health. 
I therefore still think he probably is ill, but certainly having this allegation come out at the same time that he retired is a little suspicious, and we're going to have to watch this unfold. What does this mean for Unifor, or is this just inside baseball? Ah, good question. So uh, knowing that he was not going to seek re-election in August, two frontrunners for his job have emerged. One is his uh, executive assistant, his strong right arm. Again, that's not unusual for someone who was at the right arm of somebody to step forward and say, I want to lead. But uh, a leader of a very large local within Unifor has also stepped forward. So it does appear there is to be a race and a choice and an election that means something. Now, again, I think the question will be, will they try to schedule that election sooner than August, given that he has retired? Is there an interim leader? And are they going to make sure that interim leader has no chance to run for office? Or conceivably, the interim leader could be the one they coronated the next one. So I think there is some inside politics going on here. But we had believed before this allegation that there was going to be a change at the top. This is just maybe making it happen a little faster. Marvin Ryder with us, Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Now a new poll suggests nearly three-quarters of Canadians believe NATO allies should prepare for military intervention as Russian aggression escalates in Ukraine, even if half hold out hope for a diplomatic resolution that is the results of a leger poll andrew ends is with us vp at leger's winnipeg office and with us now andrew thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you uh, scott good to be back on your program and yes keeping very well waiting for the end of winter yeah i can hear <laughs> i agree here and i understand what that's like in the peg and we're getting snow here today in ontario as well so uh are you surprised at this outcome because it, it appears canadians might be changing their opinion on on this conflict and and whether we should be spending more on our military is that accurate you know i i, I think that is uh, i think that is uh, accurate scott and i am a i am a bit surprised i mean canadians Canadians' uh, views on on the Ukraine situation, if anything, appear to be hardening. Uh, you know, our concern, you know, our view that this could escalate into a, a broader conflict uh, has really increased over the last couple of weeks. And when we started polling on this issue, and as you as you noted in your um, your introduction, um, you know, some of those numbers regarding preparing for you know military intervention by NATO. I mean, that. That catches me a bit off guard for the Canadian, you know, kind of peace-loving public to be to be fairly hawkish on this uh, on this issue. Uh, there was an interesting news flash that just came from CBC. It says Parliament gave Zelensky's as Zelensky a hero's welcome. He gave us something else, a cold dose of reality. Are yeah. uh, perhaps we starting to understand what is really going on here, and perhaps we're not doing enough to support the rest of the world? Well, it is, it, you know, it is interesting. I mean, uh, you know, on the one hand, when, when, when 74% of Canadians say that this could escalate, I guess maybe they do understand when, when, when they start supporting things like a no-fly zone or, uh, you know, Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO. 66% feel that Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO. I mean, those are moves that would likely um, broaden this conflict. Yeah, uh, I mean, Russia has been pretty categorical or, or a no fly zone, as I understand it. I mean, that would that would basically put NATO forces 
in direct conflict with Russian Russian forces, and there you go. So it is it is interesting. I mean, I don't uh, you know, and it's almost interesting. We asked a lot of these questions in the United States, and and our our Canadian you know levels of agreement and and our hawkishness is actually stronger on this than than what the Americans are. The Americans are a bit more. Uh, I mean, they're still very much in Ukraine's corner, but they're a bit more, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, less intense, I would say, compared to uh, to Canadian views. We know uh, Canadians not necessarily interested in spending in the mil- uh, spending on the military. Uh, obviously, now not really interested in expanding our energy industry in any way. <laughs> Is the Prime Minister waiting to see or waiting to 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 see if if uh, Canadians' views are changing on this? Could this change policy? Well, I wonder. Uh, you know, I, I I think there might be something to that, Scott. I heard uh, I heard reference to the I, I believe it was whether minister, the Minister of Defense or it might have been the Yukon the Yukon uh, pre, uh, territorial premiers, including the Premier of Yukon, commenting on the need to give some consideration that we share a border in the north uh, to some degree with Russia. And that perhaps we we need to to look at our northern defenses. And I thought I heard some some positive reflection on that from the defense minister. So you could well see a shift in in um, in sort of priority and and, and spending, um, you know, in the federal government in light of the in right in light of the Ukraine situation. Not to mention the pressure that we're getting from our NATO allies to suggest that we better we actually have to up our game on that front. What do these appearances by uh, Zelensky do? What because uh, he, he's obviously he's going to chat with uh, Congress, the U.S. tomorrow. Uh, obviously, spoke to UK Parliament. What does this do? Well, you know, I think it. I, I think it, it. To your point, um, he's delivering. I, I would say, you know, two messages here. He's reminding, you know, that that uh, you know this is a perilous situation for Ukraine. But I also think he is he is providing that 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 cold cold uh, hard reality that that uh, you know it's going to take more and it's going to and it's going to be a while uh, you know I think he's he's making those uh, those points uh, I think that you know militarily I don't know how long the Ukraine can hold out but I think he's also probably maybe laying some groundwork that if nothing else that Canadians and Americans should be prepared that 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 these uh, these positions they're taking now against Russia have, can't be sort of a short term thing. They they need to be long term. Um, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see how uh, Canadians' opinions change on this. Uh, the longer this drags out, many didn't think it would last this long. Uh, Andrew yeah. ends with us, Executive VP at Leger's Winnipeg office. A new poll from them suggests nearly three th- uh, quarters of Canadians believe NATO allies should prepare for military intervention as Russian aggression escalates. Even though half hold out hope for a diplomatic resolution. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well in the peg. You bet. Thanks, guys. You've offered your help, your assistance at the, our earliest request. You supply us with the military assistance, with humanitarian assistance. You've imposed severe sanctions, serious sanctions. At the same time, we see that, unfortunately, this, this, this did not bring the end to the war. You, you can see that our cities like Kharkiv, Mariupol, and many other cities are not protected just like your cities are protected, Edmonton, Vancouver. 
That's voice of a translator uh, in the speech by President Zelensky of Ukraine to the House of Commons today, thanking Canada for all it's done. But really, um, it's not much of help at this point. They need that no-fly zone. However, with that comes uh, a signal to the start of World War III, which is why we are as apprehensive as we are. Uh, anyway, as this uh, continues through day 20, um, many are asking and, and wondering what China's role is in all of this. Um, what's the difference between China and Russia if you just take out the military action in, in what we've been seeing over the last couple of years? And in a piece for the Globe and Mail, Charles Burton wrote about how China could come out on top of this strife we are seeing in Europe right now. Uh, The article is entitled, China's Potential Long Game, First Dominate Russia, and then on to the Arctic. Charles Burton is with a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good to speak with you again, Scott. How does this play into China's hands, what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine? I think it it really is well regarded in Beijing that the world is unfolding as Beijing hoped. You know, as we discussed on the program before, China has this audacious ambition to take over the leadership of the world from the United States. They think the U.S. and the Western powers are in decline. And, uh, you know, this incident uh, of the Russians going into Ukraine and engaging in an invasion and the Western world doing nothing effective to stop it uh, plays into China's narrative that the West is is weak. And I mean, in terms of the, the um, example of Ukraine, China sees, you know, an autocratic state going into a democracy, destroying its identity and subsuming it, you know, either directly into Russia or as a vassal state and China looks at Taiwan and thinks, well, you know, this is the same thing. Go into a democracy, eliminate the Taiwanese identity, make Taiwan into a province of the People's Republic of China under the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, evidently the West won't won't lift a finger beyond, you know, putting the colors of the flag on the peace tower and, and praising the, the resolve of, of the people. So, you know, this, this thing is, is, uh, is helping China quite a bit. And the fact that it's weakening Russia is a bonus for China because, you know, Russia will become dependent on China for um, access by proxy to financial markets, for uh, selling its oil and agricultural commodities and minerals, you know, because they won't be able to sell into Europe. Um, China will extract a price for that, and that'll be Russian support for China's overall global agenda, so, you know, likely including Russian military support for action on Taiwan. Does this really show China how weak not only the Russian forces are, because they're having so much difficulty with Ukraine, but also, as you pointed out, the, the West is weak, and as a result of the West being weak, um, they, they certainly don't want to defend what NATO is supposed to stand for, or, you know, certainly any farther than that. So uh, does China look at this as, you know, both dominoes have dropped here? Yeah, I think so. And and certainly China does not want this invasion to fail. So, 
you know, when the Russians ask for support, um, military support, drones or uh, rations to feed their soldiers who, you know, end up spend, are spending a lot more time in the Ukrainian mud uh, needing, needing meals than, than Mr. Putin had reckoned, uh, China will give that support. I think it's unquestionably so. The fact that China flatly denies that the Russians have asked for their support, you know, we can take with a shovel full of salt. I mean, China flatly denies all sorts of things, including the origins of COVID-19. So, you know, the idea that China would not support the Russians is almost unthinkable because if the, if the Russians, you know, had to, to leave Ukraine without achieving their objective, then that would send a, a, the opposite signal about Taiwan and China doesn't want that to be the case for sure. Uh, Canadians, obviously, uh, this is a long way away from us. Uh, we kind of live in a bubble. Uh, that being said, uh, territorial leaders have expressed concern of a Russian invasion or at least encroachment in the Arctic. Are we listening to them? No, I mean, you know, Russia claims virtually all, well, I think really all of the uh, Arctic resources, including stuff that's under the... Uh, under the Canadian continental shelf. So if the West is seen as weak and, you know, and all you have to do is to, is to threaten nuclear war or some other consequence and the West backs off, then you can be sure that Russia will, and China, with, you know, with China, which uh, claims it's a near Arctic state, but it's neither near nor Arctic, you know, would go in there and start to exploit the Canadian resources. And we have nothing up there that shows our presence in the Arctic in any meaningful way or any capacity to defend. So, you know, years of, of just deferring, uh, you know, our, our commitment to the Arctic or talking about how Canada is the true North strong and free, but consistently not putting the money into the bases and military hardware and submarines and airplanes and so on that you need to, to maintain your claim of sovereignty is now coming home to roost. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sure hope the government looks at, at their past policy, recognizes that we fell far short in terms of, of um, creating an effective defense against the kind of thing that's happening now. And it's time to do a quick reversal. I mean, the Germans have just doubled their military budget, but we haven't heard uh, a peep out of Justin Trudeau with regard to any shortcomings in, in Canada's defense strategy. Uh, do you think we will see changes in those policies? We've certainly seen with the global pandemic how Canada has got a few weak links in the chain. This conflict has also displayed a few more of those weak links. Is this enough to make Canadians stand up and take note? I mean, I felt very awkward watching President Zelensky in this passionate speech, and we're all standing and, and patting ourselves on the back, but we're not doing what he's asking us to do. Um, is this going to change policy? Is this going to change Canadians' attitude in any way? Well, I mean, you know, certainly our allies are feeling that Canada is a very weak link because we are. You know, we've been under under committing to, to NATO and we haven't done anything to defend the North and we need to upgrade NORAD. And, you know, there's all sorts of things there. And, you know, all of this talk about praising Ukrainian resolve and saying we stand with you and so on. The bottom line is that, you know, the Russians have bombs that suck the air out of people's lungs. Yeah. I mean, this is not a question that if you if you have enough uh, um, grit, you know, somehow or other, you can you can defend against a, a, 
a, a military um, uh, superpower, you know, they need support. They need they need weapons. They need they need uh, the the um, no fly zone. They need they need Canada to be there for them in in more than just uh, uh, you know nice words. Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald Laurie Institute. You can read his latest in the Globe and Mail, uh, China's potential long-term game, first dominate Russia, and then on to the Arctic. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and fresh back from the big game last night at Tim Hortons Field, uh, doing his show and, and, and juggling and riding a bicycle backwards all at the same time. Scott, how are you? I hope you're well. I am fresh back. You make it sound like it like it was hours. I had to travel by dog sled to get back. <laughs> exactly. How was it? It, it just it must have been incredible. You know what? It was a great weekend, and it was a great idea. Yeah, and, great column you wrote about that you know, being a great weekend, and yeah. That I don't know how much it matters to people outside the city where the outdoor games are played, but it mattered here, and that's what really yeah. was important for around this place. Kudos to the Hammer. Look great, and uh, hopefully we get to do it again. A couple of great events here, so it's it's been yeah, we've had a, a good lot, run the last little while. We had the soccer yeah. game, the World Cup, and we had the Great Cup. Great Cup, great yeah, winter. absolutely. Yeah, what's next? Where's when's Springsteen coming? All right, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, I must admit, I felt a little a little uncomfortable watching President Zelensky's speech, passionate, passionate speech, heroic speech in the House of Commons today, and everybody standing up, giving them a couple of minute standing ovation, and telling them about all the great sanctions that were, were uh, you know, inflicting on, on Russia and such, um, knowing in the back of my mind that sooner or later this country is going to fall if, if Russia keeps marching in the direction that it is. Uh, do you think this is going to change Canadians' minds? How a guy on from Leger earlier on says, yes, my, minds are changing. Do you think this is going to change policy and, and, and make people look at, you know, keeping up with our NATO spending and everything else that needs to be done? There's also the concern with Russia in the Arctic uh, as well. But we just seem to think that we can hug everybody's badness away. Uh, okay, so before I answer that, let me go back to something you said in the intro that I disagree with a little. And I, I think that people here do care. I think the Canadians do care. The question is, can you care and not want to adjust too much of your life at the same time? And I think <laughs> that's where we are. I think we really do care. I think Canadians are very passionate about what's going on. But I don't think that most of us are looking, saying, I really want to have a very, very different way of life to do something about it. Yeah, Which it's sort of like NIMBYism, you know, isn't it? You know, yeah, not well, in my backyard. Yeah. I, and I will say, I'm, one thing I'm very glad about today, I don't know if you saw this, I talked about it on my show last night, I am so glad the Prime Minister did not show up like Emmanuel Macron has been doing in France, who is the most clean cut of world leaders out there. You never see him not in a tailored suit and shaven and his hair perfect. Go look at some recent pictures of him. He's clearly been looking around the world and saying that Mr. Zelensky is now the leader of the world, and Macron is now dressing like him. It's like a fanboy thing. It's so what? What like in military shirts and stuff? Like what do you mean? He's wearing hoodies. He's walking in with hoodies. He's got the yeah. four day unshaven look. He's got his hair tussled. He's. Lo- I mean, he looks like Zelensky, and it's like there's no. This can't be a coincidence that at this moment is the first time he lets himself be like that. So I'm very thankful 
that our prime minister, who heaven knows, has dressed in enough costumes, didn't show up at the House of Commons today looking like Zelensky because that would have been a little too much. But you're so, right about our our what we face. I mean, look, Canada's never. I don't think we've got too long a border on all sides. We can never properly defend ourselves. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. The borders are too long. But we are pretty apathetic to what's happening. And look, I'm not suggesting for a second that Russia is about to invade Canada. But we are right next to Russia if you look over the top of the globe. I mean, it looks like a long way around, but over the top, we're not that far away. You know, I don't know how we defend ourselves or prepare to defend ourselves, but surely we got to be doing something more than we're doing right now, which is essentially nothing. We don't have to punch up like the U.S., but we certainly have to do our share, and that's what we're not doing. I, I, yeah, we've got to put. Well, what do we spend on military? A I don't know, but it's supposed to. It's, no, it's, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be for NATO. The minimum of two percent. We're at one point three nine. Okay, that's what I was. Yeah. So uh, yeah, at the very least, and and look with what's been going on, how many countries around the world who are part of NATO have said. Thank goodness now we're part of NATO because look at Ukraine. Look at the position they're in because they're not. And so if you're going to be breathing that sigh of relief that we've got this protection, are you not obligated to at least, as you say, pay your share to keep up that membership in the club so that if the bad times ever would come here, and I don't expect them to, but if they ever did, we could have held up our end of the bargain? I would think so. And we saw the same thing happen with Crimea and had the same response. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well and have a good show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.